Well, back in uh, 2006, uh, my wife and I, alongside a brother and sister-in-law, hopped on an airplane to get out of Canada and uh, move to the United States of America, sunny California. Our move was driven by really what we perceived to be, and others affirmed to be, a calling from the Lord on our lives to go into full-time ministry. We didn't have a sense at that time that we were going to come back to Canada and plant a church. And at the time, we, we left everything behind. We didn't have much. That's the good news. So it wasn't you know, a lot that we were leaving. The hardest thing was obviously relationships, people. But we uprooted our life, left our home, the place that we grew up in, and we began to live in a foreign land. And while we're there, one of the things we noticed was that it was easy to kind of begin to assimilate into the culture. And yeah, it's just the United States, but it's a little bit of a different culture there. There's some culture shock, especially California. And it's easy to get comfortable. That's what we found. Easy to kind of get comfortable. This kind of began to feel like our home. But in the back of my mind, I had um, uh, the voice of somebody near and dear to me who said right before I left, make sure you come home. So three years. Anytime I felt like I was getting really comfortable, it's like the Lord just kept bringing to the forefront of my own mind, make sure you come home. We were temporary residents there. We knew that. We always had the sense that it was temporary. I mean, we only had a, a, a temporary visa, so at some point they were going to kick us out if we didn't leave. We knew that we were citizens of another country. As much as it, it felt like it at times, the place that we were temporarily living was not really our home. And I say all that to simply say that this is exactly the way that Christians are supposed to feel about their life here on this earth. This world, as we know it, is really not our home. And this is a message that God has been trying to convey and communicate and drive into the hearts of his people all throughout the scriptures. Any place you go to in the scriptures, you're going to see glimpses of this, reminders of this, all the way back in the very first book of the Bible, God is trying to teach his people to hold loosely to this world, to this earth. It's what he's teaching his people here in Genesis chapter 46 and 47, as Joseph and his brothers find themselves in Egypt. His brothers are seeking to sojourn in Egypt. To sojourn is really a legal term that signifies really only a temporary residency in the land. They were not looking to become permanent residents, citizens of Egypt. They knew that where they were living was not their final destination. It wasn't going to be their home. And all of this, by the way, is in fulfillment, what we see in this chapter of Genesis 15, 13. It's what God said to Abraham all the way back then. He said, know certainly that your seed will be a sojourner in a land that does not belong to them. God's people are called to live in this world as sojourners. And that at times, admittedly, can feel a little bit unsettling. And what God wants to do in the hearts of believers who find themselves in this exact position is he wants to settle our hearts and minds by reminding us of what he's doing and where we're ultimately going. I want us to see two ways that God settles us as we sojourn in a foreign land. The first one is that God preserves us by his providence. I want to read in chapter 46, so let's pick up in verse 28. This is on the heels of Joseph's family getting ready to move to Egypt, and it says this, verse 28, he had sent Judah, this is speaking of Jacob, ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. They came into the land of Goshen, then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. 
He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians." So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, my father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land for there is no pasture for your servants' flock for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please, let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojournings are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, and Pharaoh and had, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. We are seeing here the preservation of God at work in his people. And God has been doing this by providentially orchestrating the events of human history all the way from getting Joseph sold into slavery at the hands of his brothers who were in sin, having Joseph rise to a position of power, second in command in all the land of Egypt, second to Pharaoh. And now he's He's ruling on behalf of Pharaoh during a time of famine, again, that the Lord has brought about in order to move the nation of Israel out of the land of Canaan and down into Egypt so that they may survive. But this chapter begins with this really precious family reunion. Remember, Jacob, he thought that Joseph was dead. He couldn't believe when he found out that Joseph was alive. It took a little bit of convincing. After all, the brothers who were telling him this were the ones who lied to him in the first place. But really, this is about God accomplishing his purposes through his providence. He's in effect saying to to Joseph and to his brothers, you know, you are a small people amongst this great dynasty, but this is exactly where I want you, and I want to encourage you today, the same is true for us as the people of God living this side of the cross. We may feel at times like we are small in number. We may not really know what's going on in the world at large, and we might not know all that God is doing in his providence, but we can be assured of this, that God has us exactly where he wants us to be at this moment in time, and that God is faithful I want to encourage you as we we move through this and, and take a look at how God is preserving his people there's a response that this really calls for in the life of his people. The first response is this, that we need to embrace his plan. 
And this story could have gone a number of different directions, depending on how the family, Joseph's family, Jacob's family, responds to the news and to their new circumstances. Remember that Joseph had been working on a plan to secure a place for the people of God, for his father and for his brothers. He had been orchestrating some things behind the scenes, and he he wants to get them to this land of Goshen. Why is he doing this? The simple answer is, is that he actually understands God's greater plan. He actually understands there's a bigger picture going on. If you were here last week, what we saw in the previous chapter as kind of the truth unfolds before Joseph's brothers, that the brother they, they sold into slavery is the ruler of Egypt standing in front of them. They were terrified, and he reassures them, and he comforts them by telling them, listen, listen, I know, I know this is shocking news, and I know that you think I'm going to take vengeance on you, but here's, here's what I've come to see and I've come to understand, is that God, listen, what you meant for evil, God means for good. God is the one who sent me here before you. God sent me here to actually preserve a remnant for himself. God's got a plan. And because he understands this plan, he can actually begin to work on the particulars. Now, don't miss this. This is such a big deal. You see, God's sovereignty in our lives does not alleviate human responsibility. Sometimes these things get pitted against each other. Well, if God is sovereign, then you know, we don't have any responsibility. You hear things like, let go and let God. That is utter foolishness. In fact, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God encourages our activity. It encourages our responsibility. It doesn't in any way diminish it. We believe God is sovereign over both the ends and he's sovereign over the means. And the means that God is using to accomplish his plan and his purposes is people. You see, understanding God's plan helps us work with wisdom to advance his plan. So he, he gets his brothers together, and you know, he's kind of got them situated where, where he wants them to be, but he knows he needs the, the permission of Pharaoh for them to kind of set up shop, so to speak, in the land of Canaan. So he, he wants them to tell Pharaoh that they're shepherds, they're keepers of livestock, and the reason from the text is that for some reason, shepherds were an abomination to the Egyptians. We don't really know why, but there's, there's some kind of a stigma attached to people who keep livestock. They're a little kind of lower, they're looked at as being lower class. So the Egyptians didn't want anything to do with them. And Joseph knows this, so he comes up with this brilliant plan. Listen, when you go into Pharaoh, just tell him that you guys are shepherds, okay? You know, you can kind of picture the scene, right? The brothers get together and they go, okay, just tell him you keep livestock. And, you know, Simeon's like, should we tell him we make wagons? No. Tell him you keep livestock. What about the other businesses that we run? Don't mention those. Just mention the livestock. And, and that's the ticket. Because he's not going to want anything to do with you. And that's exactly what takes place. Joseph rightly understands the prejudice that they have towards shepherds, and they make sure that Pharaoh knows, you know, as they go in, that they work with stinky, smelly animals, and some distance would be a good idea. Now listen, this is really, really important. You see, this is going to result in them, this is amazing, receiving the best of the land. The best of the land in the time of famine. They're going to get this land of Goshen. You see, what's God's plan for his people in this moment? Why is this such a big deal? God's plan, I think, here can be separated into two ideas that I think we can relate to. Here it is, separation and preparation, okay? Separation and preparation. You see, Goshen was this unoccupied land of great fertility. And it's where the family of God would end up living for around 400 years, and they would grow by leaps and bounds into a great multitude. But it also has two advantages. The first is actually a physical advantage, a geographical advantage. So there's this physical separation, and here's why, because Goshen is situated kind of right on the northeastern border of Egypt, and that's going to make it a very easy location from which Israel can later depart in the Exodus. So in other words, um, when Israel's got to leave in the book of Exodus, 
Uh, they're not honeycombed into the communities. They're not assimilated and integrated geographically. They're completely separate and they're far away. They're closer to home. You see, it's almost like God saying, don't worry, I'm gonna make sure I get you safely home. But the second reason is actually more important. You see, there's a spiritual separation that we're supposed to pay attention to. Goshen was a self-contained region where the people of Israel could be isolated from the ungodly influences of Egyptian culture. This was a pagan culture. They worshiped a plethora of gods that were all related to nature and animals. And what God is doing is he's making sure that they're located in a place where they are going to be somewhat secluded from these pagan influences. This is going to allow them to retain something of their unique identity and status, enjoying the benefits of the land without being compromised by it. You'll notice as you read through the Old Testament, one of the things that that God calls his people to are are to be a unique people, a peculiar people, a distinct people. And so a lot of the, the things that they were to do even in their law, the things they were to avoid and separate themselves from, they were supposed to distinguish them in a, in a very real, tangible way from the nations around them, but behind that was this idea that they were supposed to be distinguished spiritually from them. They didn't worship the gods of the nations, they worshiped the one true and living God, and so they were, they were supposed to be kind of weird, right? A constant reminder that they stick out because, listen, they stick out in this world. Why? Because this world's not their home. I was talking to somebody last week, they sent me a text message, and uh, uh, their kid had just, you know, was, was, it blew their mind. They're, they're, they, this person I was talking to, they enjoy watching cycling. And I do too, okay? Just so you know, so don't hate. But their kid, their, their young child, one of their kids, they couldn't wrap their mind around it. And they're like, Dad, you're, you're kind of a nerd. And, and he said, well, Pastor Ian watches cycling too. And she goes, well, that's okay because he's a God nerd. <laughs> And I like that. This is true. But you know, honestly, it made me think, you know what? There's a sense in which we're actually supposed to embrace that kind of a concept in our lives. We're all supposed to be a bunch of God nerds, okay? We're all supposed to stick out and be weird and different and distinct and peculiar because we worship the God of the Bible, we know that the true God, the living God, we found life in Him. And our lives ought to demonstrate that. They ought, to, they ought to demonstrate it very visibly. Commentator Robert Canlish, he writes this. He says that he would rather, God, God would rather have them to be an abomination than a delight to the Egyptians. Egypt's frown, he says, is better for them than Egypt's flattery and fellowship. You can kind of hear James in the background, right? To be... You know, friends with the world is to be an enemy of God. And the same is is obviously true for us as Christians who are living in this world. Listen, since our salvation lies in the world to come, our priority is to live in holiness before the Lord according to his word, not being led astray by idolatries that surround us. Author Liam Gallagher writes this. He says, Today we have to be in the world while not belonging to it, but like Jacob's family in Egypt, we too are pilgrims and strangers here. We are to be holy because God is holy, 1 Peter 1.16, and the ungodly secular world is the biggest threat to our personal holiness. If this is true, that the secular world is the biggest threat to our personal holiness, let me ask you, is there enough intentional separation in your life from the world? Or are you so immersed in the world that you cannot be distinguished from the world? 
If we're going to do this intentionally, I would just suggest to you that this requires that we actually have to remove things from our lives. Let me kind of play off of this idea of separation, where they are removed from the influences of the world. If you're not willing to remove some things in your life that are negatively influencing you in a worldly way, it's inevitable. You will start to become like the world. You just will. So this requires that we remove things from our lives that are polluting our souls. We need to pay attention to the way the world is trying to shape the way we think. We need to pay attention to the way the world is trying to shape what we love, what we worship, what we hunger and thirst for, what we believe is going to give us joy or satisfaction or ultimate meaning and purpose. We have to watch our hearts. The world, Satan is a mastermind at using the world to begin to to influence how we think. And we're so often immersed in the world, the the subtle effects, the way it so, so craftily changes the way we think, they're not immediately obvious to us. We need to remove things. And then I would suggest two other actions to take. We need to renew our minds in the word of God. And then we need to replace those things with better things, godly things. So we see this idea of separation, but notice too that it involves a a preservation through preparation. So, So the separation isn't just about removing ungodly influences from their life or opportunities to be shaped by the, the worldly influences. It's actually about their own preparation. There are things that they need to do in order to cultivate a relationship with God. That's one of the key reasons they're removed. Joseph here, he wanted to provide for his family I love that, and that's, that's a, a mentality and an attitude we should have when it comes to our own families, when it comes to the family of God. But his primary concern was how to prepare his family for the redemptive future that God had promised. Remember, this is in the, the back of his mind. Really, it's actually probably in the forefront of his mind. He, he's not just looking to get them good land where they're going to be able to raise crops. He's thinking bigger. He's thinking about the way God is going to use this family to reach the nations in the plan of redemption. He's concerned about their spiritual lives, their spiritual devotion to the Lord, their worship of Yahweh. He understands what's at stake here. And this is the way that we, as Christians, should think about our lives. So parents, we just had this this great parent-child dedication, and we talked a little bit about this, the objective in parenting. Let me just kind of press this in a little bit further. It seems like a fitting day to do so. Parents, of course, we want to prepare our children to succeed in this life. We want them to be well-educated. We want them to have good jobs. We want them to learn the basic skills of life so they can be good citizens while they're here. That's all right. That's all noble. That's all appropriate. But, but let me say that we ought to be more concerned about their spiritual life. We ought to put more time and energy into their spiritual development, their thinking, shaping a Christian worldview. We ought to be more concerned that they know Jesus. They love Jesus. They want to follow Jesus. And as, as I said to the parents and as we prayed, like our, our objective parents is like, we got to do everything we can by the grace of God to keep pointing our kids to Jesus. And, and, and that means this, that when we do it imperfectly, we repent often to them. We show them the humility that's required to follow Jesus. And we show them the grace that God pours out on us, even when we don't succeed. If you're maybe a youth or a young adult, let me, let me apply this to your life. Instead of thinking only of how you can grow up and make the most amount of money or how you can grow up and, and get a really good job and, and you know, maybe become prestigious or accomplish big things in your life. Again, that, that's not wrong or sinful to, to, to aspire to have those things. And to, obviously, you're going to need money. Believe me, you're not going to live in your parents' basement forever. Can I get an amen? Yes, okay. But, but listen, that cannot be your supreme objective in life. There's more. There's more to life. And, and listen, the, the short life that the Lord has given you is a reminder that there's something more after this life. You need to be concerned about the calling that God might be placing on your life. How is he calling you to serve the kingdom of God? How is he, how is he gifted you and how does he want to use you to advance his kingdom purposes here and now? Young person, you're not too young to be used by God. 
You've got to be thinking about this now. Be praying that God would help you learn to follow him well, to serve his people and to honor the Lord in everything you do. Let me speak to one more category of, of people in this room. Um, we'll call them mature Christians who are entering your retirement years. See how gracious that was? Instead of thinking only of leisure and rest, instead of just thinking about how you're going to spend all the money you've been able to save and what kind of trips you're going to take, again, none of those things are bad. And I, like, I'd encourage you, look, go, do those things. But instead of making that your sole purpose at this stage of your life, consider how to wield an encouraging spiritual influence on your children and your grandchildren and, and see how you might be able to leverage the years of experience in following the Lord to have greater spiritual impact and influence in the church of Jesus Christ. In the words of John Piper to all of us, don't waste your life. Don't waste it. God's plan is your separation and God's plan is your preparation because God wants to use you. Next, notice that we must receive his provision. What God calls us to, he equips us for. And we see in verses seven through 12 that Jacob is brought now into the presence of Pharaoh and he has an opportunity to speak to him and you'll notice that twice the word sojourning is used. Once in reference to his own life, the other in reference to his uh, father's lives for uh, the patriarchs. But I want you to, to see how he describes his life. When he's asked, you know, how old are you? He gives him his age, and then he makes this stunning statement, few and evil have been the years of my life. And he has had a hard life. And if you've been with us in Genesis, I mean, this, this is a bit of an understatement, isn't it? He, he has lived the life. I mean, just, just think about what he's gone through. Think about his flight from Esau, right? His, his older brother trying to murder him after he tried to steal his birthright and the blessing from the father. His miseries at the hand of Laban. The rape of his daughter Dinah. The death of his beloved wife Rachel. His eldest son's power-seeking incest. His favorite son's apparent death. He's had a life where he's really struggled to trust God, where he really hasn't lived well a lot of the time. And yet God has been so gracious to him through it all. God has been gracious to forgive him. God has been gracious to reconcile him. God has been gracious to restore him, not just to, him, to himself, you know, vertical restoration and reconciliation, but even to his family, even to his son that he thought was dead. He, he's experiencing even here, right, this reunion, his family back together. And he sees that even though he's at times been unfaithful and lacked faith, God has been so faithful to him and that's such a wonderful reminder. You know, as you look back at your life, maybe, maybe you can resonate with Jacob. Maybe you look back and you're like, yeah, few and evil have been the years of my life. I mean, I've just made a mess of things. I have just, it's been up and down. And maybe some of it isn't, isn't because of your own sin. Maybe a lot of it is because of your own sin. It's wonderful to know that no matter how you've lived your life, God is gracious to you. God can meet you in those moments. God can forgive. God can re reconcile. God can restore. And then God can use you. Think about this. Jacob is here, and he now fully understands what Joseph understands, that God is going to be faithful to fulfill his promises through his family. He's saving for himself a remnant through whom he's going to save the world. Jacob stands before Pharaoh and I think his response indicates that he understands how undeserving he is of God's grace. And you know, how good God has been all his life. He has known the blessing of God on his life in such tangible ways. And as a result, he can bless on behalf of God. 
This is an astounding thing that takes place here as he blesses Pharaoh because normally, especially in the ancient culture, it was the person in the position of power and authority who was the one who blessed the people who are lower on the the rung, so to speak. And so here we see Joseph taking this position of blessing Pharaoh, the ruler of the land, the most powerful man, arguably, in the world. And what God is making clear is this, I don't care who you stand in front of, if you have me, you're the most powerful person in the room. You're the one who has the most influence, and you're the one who has the ability to bless because you have received the blessings from the Almighty God. One author said that the greater danger for the church is failing to realize that the world exists for the sake of its witness. The church, she says, does not exist to enjoy worldly pleasures, but for the ingathering of new believers as we bless the world through our gospel witness. God's blessings often flow through God's people. That's the way God has designed this to work. And God preserves us by providing for us to advance his purposes through us. Even in Egypt, God provides a refuge for his people. He is able to sway the hearts of kings. He is able to raise the humble prisoner to a position of power and might. He is able to reconcile a family. He's able to give them a land in a foreign country, and he's able to provide food in the midst of a severe famine. God is pouring out his blessing on this family to make them a suitable blessing to the world, and God has done the same for you and I if you're in Christ. He has lavished you with his blessings, just unleashed a torrent of his blessings upon you in Jesus Christ so that not only you might enjoy them and experience them, but you might be a conduit through which God can now bless the world. They get the best of the land. Now let me just kind of make one quick application before moving to the the second point here. I think this is, this is amazing. They get this land of Goshen. They get the best of the land. You know, God's not calling us to kind of, you know, go buy a piece of land and literally wall ourselves off from the world, okay? Um, that's not what God is calling Christians to do or to be in this world. But I promise you this. There is a sense in which God has given to us already the best of the land. The best of the land for the people of God is the church of Jesus Christ, it's, it's this. It's right here. It's the gathering of God's people. This, think about this for a moment. This is like a little slice of heaven on earth. This, the church is an embassy of the kingdom of God right here. This is a holy ground, so to speak. This is where God dwells with his people. This is where God provides richly for his people. As we we gather together, we receive in abundance the manifold blessings of God over and over and over again. This is the place that God preserves us so that we might be distinct in the world. It's here together that we embrace his plan and receive his provision. It's here that we gather to enjoy the provision of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ over and over. We sing it, we pray it, we hear it, we encourage one another. It's this little place, this little group of people where we experience a kind of separation from the world and a kind of preparation for the world. We come together and we feast on the word of God. We come together to be led by our Savior who is the chief shepherd because we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. We're reminded of who we are and whose we are. We are reminded of why we are here and how we are supposed to live. And I want to encourage you in light of that, listen, in light of that spiritual reality, lean into the people of God. Lean into the church. To lean out is to do so to your own detriment. Does that mean the church is perfect? Absolutely not. Does it mean you won't get hurt? Absolutely not. But this is the place that God has called us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling with one another. Lean in. You will get out of it what you put into it. 
Next, we, we see this. How does God settle us as we sojourn in a foreign land? God protects us because of his promises. Picking up in verse 13, it says, Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house, and when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds. And the donkeys, he supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, we will not hide from my Lord that, all, that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us in our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh, and give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because of the famine. The famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own." as seed for the field and as food for yourselves and your households and as food for your little ones. And they said, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possession in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt." But let me lie with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt, and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Now to rightly understand the purpose of this section, the enslavement of Egypt, we need to remember the original audience. The people who first received this were the Exodus generation. They were Israelites who had been delivered from their own slavery in Egypt. And they were now on the brink of taking possession of the promised land. They were about ready to go home, finally, to get into their homeland. What they had been waiting for, that the promised land was right in front of them. They could see it. And so this account here, it actually explains their history. It explains how power was centralized in Egypt, how Israel would then grow so large, multiply to such a vast number. It explains to them how there was this resentment that they would experience and an eventual oppression under a different pharaoh. But he's not just reminding them of their history, he's reminding them of their hope. He's giving them something to hold on to when they, they can't see how, 
how the future is going to unfold, where they're unsure, they still feel unsettled, they're, they're wandering still through the wilderness as sojourners, trying to make it home. This here provides the people of God with incredible hope. And he gives them hope really in two distinct ways. He gives first the hope of his help. The famine is so bad that the Egyptians, they, they sell everything. I mean, this is hard for us, again, to, to process and fathom. It's so devastating that they, they, they literally have to liquidate everything they own. And then they finally get to this place where they've sold off everything. They, they have to actually sell all of the rest of their land and then themselves to work the land. They're selling themselves into kind of serfdom, you know, sharecropping. There's no other way to survive. And the arrangement that Joseph makes with them, it feels like this is hard for us to kind of process because it's so radically different than the world we live in, but things like this actually weren't uncommon in the ancient world, and the deal that he actually arranges with them is a very gracious deal. Look, you work the land, and you keep... um, uh, four-fifths, 80% of what you grow. Here, we'll even give you the seed. You know, 80% of what you grow, you keep, 20% goes back to Pharaoh. I mean, that's not a bad tax system. It's not great. Here, I think we could be inclined to think like, wow, Joseph, how can he do something like this? But actually, you know, like, how could he make people sell themselves? Why wouldn't he just get all this food, right? Socialism, just give it away. It's a bad idea. And he knows that. He knows that the way to actually help these people is to actually enlist them in the work. Because the work that they now do, it's not just a free ride. Actually, the work they do is going to contribute to the health of the whole. It's going to actually begin to rebuild this broken economy and this broken, devastated world that they're now living in because of this crazy famine that they've experienced. And if you have a hard time kind of thinking about what Joseph does here, I would just say, let's, let's let the Egyptians under, help us understand how we should view what Joseph did. What is their response to Joseph? Not how dare you do this to us. They look at Joseph and say, you are our savior. You have saved us. He, Joseph, in this moment is God's servant, sent to save not only Israel, but to hold out life to Egypt and all the nations of the earth. Joseph and his God are the hope of help for the world. That's what this is communicating. And ultimately, in protecting his people and having them flourish, thriving in the midst of this foreign land, God is preserving for himself a remnant through which he will bring about the true hope of the nations, Jesus, the promised Messiah. And in his saving work here, Joseph, in in a multitude of ways, prefigures Jesus Christ. There are multiple accounts in the Gospels of of Jesus feeding the 4,000 or the 5,000, which, you know, that's talking about men. So if you do women and children, you're looking up in the 20, 25,000 range. And, And Jesus did this on more than one occasion where he fed a large group of people. And if you read the accounts, it's fascinating. You know, these people are following Jesus and they're hanging off every word of Jesus, but they're kind of removed, isolated from the city. They don't have access to, to the food supplies. And so here they're out, there are, everybody just wants to hear the words of Jesus. And then, and then they realize, oh no, like everybody's getting hungry. And you know the story, right? You say, okay, let's, what, what do we got? What, let's tell me what we have to work with. Okay, a couple of fish, five loaves of bread. And then what does Jesus do? He multiplies it over and over and over and he feeds these massive crowds of people. And you know what's really interesting? At the end of these accounts, in, in every account, you know what it tells us? The people ate and were satisfied. That's what it says. And even more stunning the texts tell us that they actually went around and there was leftovers. And, and you know how much they were able to gather? The two separate accounts, is both mentioned on two separate occasions, um, seven baskets and 12 baskets. And I promise you those numbers are not insignificant. 
We've seen both of those numbers, right, pop up time and time again in the book of Genesis, right? At seven, this number of completion, this is God's number, this number of wholeness. And there's this picture, I think, in these, these real accounts of Jesus feeding the multitudes where it's like, listen, God is the giver of all good things. God is the one who possesses all power, all authority, all provision comes from the hand of God. 12 baskets? I mean, again, 12 is used repeatedly, again, for the sense of wholeness, but I think it really relates to the idea of the people of God. 12 tribes, right? 12 apostles. This number 12 is significant, symbolizing often the wholeness of the people of God. And God is saying, listen, I will always provide for my people. Always. I'm the God who saves. I'm the God who sustains I'm the God who supplies. I'm the God that satisfies. I'm the God of everything for my people. And if my people come to me, they will find all that they need. It's no wonder that Jesus says in John 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Can you hear the Egyptians saying, you saved us, you saved us. Can you hear Jesus saying, if you come to me, the bread of life, I will save you from certain death. I will save you from sin. I will pay the price for you and I will give to you instead eternal life in my name. There's something unique that God provides for his people. And that's not a promise that we won't physically go hungry, that we're never going to struggle in this life. It is a promise that we will always have God. We will always have what our soul needs to survive. Whatever circumstance you may find yourself in, if you have Jesus, you have everything you need. This is why Paul says at the end of Romans 8, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? This is it. Okay, you wanna know what you live on? You live on the love of Christ. That love has been poured out into your hearts in the person of the Holy Spirit. You have the presence of God with you if you are in Christ today. Here's the result then. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, shall any of these things separate us from the love of God? No, no, Paul says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We have everything we need. You serve the true and living God, and he says, I will take care of you while you sojourn through this land. Live for me, live for me. Seek first, this is what Jesus says, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. And all this, by the way, is pointing forward to a future hope. It's not just help right now, our ever-present help in our time of need. It is a future hope of a future home. And in the last section there, you see how Jacob, in verses 27 through 31, it says he settled in the land of Egypt and the land of Goshen, and they gained possession in it. And notice this language, and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. The first time we read those words is all the way back in the Garden of Eden. It's the command that God gives to the first humans. In this land, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's like what God is saying to his people, listen, listen, I have made this promise that I am going to get you home. I'm gonna give you right now an experience, a taste, Edenic-like conditions, only to remind you of the future that awaits you. And then he, he makes this request to Joseph. When I die, take my body back to Canaan. Don't bury me in Egypt, bury me in Canaan. I want to be buried where Abraham is, where Isaac is. I want to be back where the people of God are supposed to be, the promised land. They were looking forward to something else. They were aliens and sojourners in this foreign land and they knew it. And so he looks forward and he says, I know that there awaits for me a future home, a future land. 
In the church today, it's no different. We are pilgrims on this earth. We are sojourners. This world is not our true inheritance, and it is not our true home. The Word of God is constantly telling us something greater awaits, Christian. There's something better coming. Don't cling to this life. Don't set your hopes here. Don't set your mind here. Don't fixate on what you can get here. There's something greater that you're living for. Jesus said to his disciples in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many rooms. And he promised that he would come back and he would take us there to where he is. So let us not live in this world as if this world is our permanent residence. As Paul says, let us live as those who are citizens with the saints, members of the household of God. And church, let us declare with the apostle Peter, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Church, we look to Jesus, our living hope, waiting for his return, and with it, our future home, a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. That's how we live in a foreign land. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that reminds us, God, that this world is not our home that we're here just for a moment. Thank you for your word that tells us, Lord, how we are to live. God, how you are preserving us and how you are protecting us, how you are keeping us for yourself. And thank you that your word points us, Lord, to what awaits us, the hope, a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, we have the same hope that Jacob was clinging to. He believed that one day the promises, every promise you made would come true. That one day he would rise from the grave and he would stand in your presence in a new heaven and a new earth. As we look forward to that day, O oh Lord, we pray that that would motivate us. It would encourage us, Lord, to set our mind on things above, not on things below to live for your glory and for your honor. God, we pray that you would help us to do this and we pray, Lord, that as we live for you, we would be a people who are set apart. We are distinct. Lord, because we know you, the one true and living God. You have saved us and our lives are devoted to you. Would you Receive now worship, Lord, that flows from grateful hearts. You are worthy of it all. You have blessed us so richly, and now, O oh Lord, we want to bless you. So receive this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.